Apologies. Oofta. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota perspective on a show named after a city in North Dakota. I'm Tracy Mumford, a producer for NPR News. I am Jay Gabler from The Current. Jay, I have one question for you this morning, and that is, what's in your mug? Um, are you implying that my books are fake, Tracy? Is that where this is going? Do you think I'm under the influence of a mysterious man who lives in a semi-trailer? I don't know if you made some enemies between last week and this week. I just, this is, this is for your benefit, Jay. I'm just doing mug check, mandatory mug check. It's just coffee. No one has been fornicating with my cookware. And I have a question for you, Tracy. Do you know what the house of special purpose is? Fill me in. The House of Special Purpose was a merchant's house in Russia where Emperor Nicholas II of Russia and his family and members of his household were all murdered after the Bolshevik Revolution. Do you think in the Fargo context, the House of Special Purpose is perhaps in Eden Prairie? Oh, potentially. Or is it Stussy's house where... Ennis died? I mean, no. he did have an award. I see where you're going with that. You but know. that means the whole family is going to bite this. Anyways, yeah. So more Russian overtones, which is Noah Hawley just super psychic? Like, how is this season all about Russia and half-truths and things like that? Like, it seems so prescient and on theme with what's going on in the headlines. I mean, not a coincidence. We know it's just wrapped up filming, right? So he certainly was very aware of what's going on politically in the world while this show was being written and created. And uh, I think that is no coincidence at all. Let's kick it off here. Uh, It starts with a very tantalizing package left on the doorstep of Emmett and Stella's Eden Prairie home. Uh, If you write for your eyes only on it, you know that someone else is going to pick up that package. And that is what happens. And in this case, the eyes belong to Emmett's wife, Stella, who opens this envelope to find a note demanding $100,000 or else she herself will be shown what turns out to be on the DVD also enclosed in this padded envelope. That's right. So they made a sex tape. They made a fake sex tape. Uh, Ray, you know, still getting a lot of use out of his Emmett wig here. Um, He and Nikki stage this thing. She's wearing a hooker wig, her words, um, and they try and make it look like Emmett's been sleeping with his secretary. This is even more impressive than fooling the banker because now Emmett's wife... And we later learn daughter and son-in-law and mother-in-law, all of them fooled into thinking this is a tape of the actual Emmett Stussy getting it on with someone in a in a crazy red haircut. This is why you had to have the double casting. You could not have pulled this off otherwise. So, so Noah Hawley, yeah, knew what was happening here. But of course, Nikki and Ray's plan, like every plan on Fargo ever backfires. Uh, Stella watches it, and instead of Emmett paying them for her not to see it, Emmett is left alone. Stella moves everybody to the house. You know things are serious when she's loading up Grandma, and you realize that they named her Stella just for this one moment, just so that Emmett could stand on the steps of his mansion and yell, Stella! And Ma Uh, says, tell you, don't call! That's right. Says Emmett's newly married daughter, and he is left bereft. Now, we know that this was Ray 
Ray and uh, Nikki making the sex tape because we cut to Ray's apartment where they were getting ready to film. And Ray decided to take that moment to take a knee and profess his undying love to Nikki and pop the big question. What could be more romantic than the moments before you stage a sex tape to blackmail your brother for $100,000 than to just want to spend the rest of your life with the woman in the hooker wig? This show gets romance like no other show on television. But here's a question. So some other uh, recappers have suggested that maybe uh, Nikki is not as loyal to Ray as we might suspect. She doesn't even say I love you back when he tells her he loves her and proposes marriage. She so clearly wants the cash and freedom and Ray is the way to get it, right? Every episode that becomes more clear that she has a much bigger plan than just marrying Ray. Also, shout out to Laverne, the late dog, whose bag is now sitting by the fish tank. I hope that's not where the rest of the dog's ashes went. No, Ray probably licked them. Okay, so I would say that a lot of things happened in this episode. Did Cy have the worst day? Or did Emmett have the worst day? Or Nikki had the worst day? I mean, what happens next almost gets the vote for Cy here. This is really a rough episode for everyone involved. No one really has a great episode here. Uh, but yeah, poor Cy definitely is the most acutely insulted in this episode. He shows up at the office to find VM Varga with his feet up on Cy's desk. Cy is taken aback, and even more so when VM produces the photo of Cy's wife from Cy's desk and insults her with an anti-Semitic remark, no less. It's true. And then he picks up the mug. The mug. World's best dad, which we know, of course, Cy is. Oh, man. Fargo has officially ruined both Father's Day and mugs. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, Varga picks up the mug and relieves himself to Cy's astonishment. Can we just be clear? Like, what do the other people who work in this office think is happening? Because everything is glass walls. Yeah, they're just keeping themselves busy and not looking. And we later learn that the glass walls are no coincidence, that Emmett has always been committed to transparency and utter professionalism. And now look what's happening. People are peeing into his employees' glassware. He thinks he's joking when they tell him to drink it, but... Yuri and Mimo do not joke. Mimo pulls out that gun like that's his job, which it is. And we actually had to watch Sai drink down that mug. Yeah. And fortunately for Sai, VM seemed to have been fairly well hydrated. As urine goes, this was fairly clear urine, but still extremely unpleasant. And only after this happens do we learn what exactly VM Varga is so angry about. And it is the conversation that Sai had with Winnie Lopez. We knew that was going to come back to bite him. And poor Sai, he really didn't do anything. But he knows his place now. Varga has made it very clear. He is now going to take over Sai's office. He is in charge. He is the partner. And he tells Sai that, and that's a surprise. Sai didn't know that Emmett had officially signed over the partnership to Varga. And Sai's first thing, I mean, he's so loyal. He assumes that he must have threatened Emmett. He must have hurt Emmett. And we know that Emmett just signed because he's kind of getting greedy. Yeah. And Varga makes a very fine point about how Emmett is betraying Sai. The whole episode, Varga is trying to drive a wedge between Emmett and Sai. He'll later have a conversation with Emmett about this, but he certainly at this point tells Sai that essentially Emmett has abandoned him. There's a whole like marital metaphor here. Sai is getting cuckolded, but in this case, it's not Sai's wife who's cheating on him. It is his beloved Emmett who is essentially abandoning Sai for Varga, who is a more powerful partner. So out goes Sai. 
extra motivated now to run to his meeting with the widow Goldfarb. Who is played by Mary McDonnell. I don't know if anyone else out there is like a super sneakers nerd. Um, One of my top five favorite films. I get super excited when I see Mary McDonnell in anything. She's awesome. Uh, And she is the storage queen, right? So if Emmett is the parking lot king, she's the storage queen. And she has made major bank off this. And she's interested in making an investment or maybe an acquisition. And that's what Cy is there to talk to her about. Yeah, so he sits down with the widow Goldfarb. Cylon. Yeah, and uh, they have a conversation about the fact that uh, Goldfarb wants to use her late husband's millions to acquire Stussy Lots in total. She wants to buy the whole business, and if Cy and Emmett aren't going to sell, she is going to set up as a competitor, and no one wants a Goldfarb for an enemy. Well, the Goldfarbs are the least enemies that Cy is worried about. He is enthusiastic about the idea of selling and is almost falling over himself expressing just how interested he and Emmett might be to sell this business he's, to Goldfarb. He's easy to get, as he yeah. says. He's he, easy to get. Apparently now that Emmett has you know, made whatever he has made as parking lot king of Minnesota, he is according to Cy, ready to retire and become a global philanthropist. Kind of you know, like Bill Gates. Totally, totally. Uh, I like to the, the place that they meet at is called the Bear's Den which um, we we couldn't tie to an actual location. The only bear's den I could find in Minnesota is a, an abandoned strip club that actually burned down two years ago, which is very on theme for Fargo, but is not the bear's den that they're meeting at in this episode. Yeah, we've got to find out what this location was because it is a majestic supper club with extremely ominous bear art all over the walls. Very Canada, I'm going to say. Very Canada. We also see a bear, a, a taxidermied bear, in the foyer of Emmett Stussy's home when Cy runs to Eden Prairie, summoned via text message from Emmett because there's some kind of emergency happening. Well, of course, we know what that emergency is. Right. Fargo has always loved taxidermy. If you think back to last season, too, there was so much taxidermy in that Fargo homestead for the crime family. But yeah, so Cy is summoned back to Emmett's house and Emmett is curled up in a corner with a blanket crying because Stella has left him and he didn't even do anything. He never even looked sideways at a woman is what he said. He had opened door meetings with women. He did all the right things, Jay, and still she left him. He followed all the Mike Pence rules and still here he is. His wife has left him and Cy is a little impatient at this point. Emmett is having some kind of marital problems, but Cy very understandably wants to talk about Varga and this partnership that Emmett has supposedly signed with Varga. Right. So it's kind of a an issue where like Emmett is super tone deaf here. He thinks his problems are the top problems. He has no idea what happened to Cy and the mug situation, which is really the more pressing problem is that Varga could kill them all in an instant if uh, the wind blows that way. And Emmett's still just complaining about his wife. Cy had to throw the mug away, Tracy. He couldn't even keep this precious gift that he got from his wife. No more mugs, ever. Fornication with the cookware. What are things coming to at Stussy Lots? So... Cy does manage to get Emmett's attention eventually, and he's like, look, I can take care of this problem with Ray for you, but you need to unchain me. Let loose 
the shackles, Emmett, and Sai will really show what a fixer he can be because Emmett has already been testy with Sai in this exchange. It's kind of a poignant moment between these two who've been business partners and friends for a long time. And Emmett, you know, looks at Sai and says, you're supposed to be a fixer. You haven't fixed anything, which is, of course, true. Sai really has not been able to fix anything in this situation, despite his good intentions. But now the shackles are off. I love the idea that what we've seen so far is chained up Sai. Yeah. Like as if the Sai we've seen has been reserved. I mean, he drove his Hummer over Ray's Corvette, right? That was reserved Sai. So whatever's going to happen now that the shackles are off, look out. Throw away the key, says Emmett. Here comes Sai. So meanwhile, Gloria and Winnie, who we haven't seen the whole episode, have figured out pretty much what happened with Stussy and Stussy and Stussy. And they're trying to explain it to Deputy Donnie, who is a little dense. Just a little bit. Uh, I'm just going to put my vote in right now for a Winnie and Gloria buddy cop comedy. Season four. I'd go anywhere with them. Dream team. So they try to explain it to the deputy, and we kind of get a sense that they really have put the pieces together. Yeah, so they figured out that Ray Stussy hired Maurice to rob Emmett Stussy. Maurice messed it up, got the wrong Stussy. They still don't know what the role of Vanessa might be. Who's Vanessa? Well, Vanessa is the person who nominally rented the apartment that lost an air conditioner on top of Maurice. Right, so that's Nikki's alter ego. As Deputy Dottie points out, new chief is not going to like this theory, and he doesn't. He likes it so little, in fact, that he cuts short an interrogation of Ray, who gets yanked back in for questioning. That's right. And he tells this obnoxious story. So Gloria tries to explain, like, no, this isn't a coincidence. This actually happened. The sheriff has a little story about coincidences for her. And he tells this story about a balloon that this little girl named Laura Buxton let go. And it landed miles and miles away in the yard of another girl named Laura Buxton. This is actually true. Snopes gives it a mostly true rating on their website. Always got to trust Snopes. And it happened in England in 2001. Laura Buxton sent a balloon to another Laura Buxton completely on accident. Yeah. So new chief says, Stussy, 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 you can't prove anything. We got work to do. Let him go. So Ray, who's been hauled in, finally gets to go free. And we'll learn later in the episode what he encounters when he gets back home. Wait, wait. So we skip the tuck shop here. Well, this is actually really an important moment. Um, Ray and Nikki are at the tuck shop. They think they're going to be rich. They think they're going to get $100,000 from their kooky sex tape plan. They're picking out their tucks. Nikki's kind of looking at a wedding dress in a way that to me said, I don't really ever plan on wearing this. Like, I'm still getting this hint that she has a whole other plan of how she thinks this is going to go. And Cy calls Nikki's phone. Here comes the unshackled Cy. The chains are off. Yeah. And uh, he's letting her know, like, you're the stupidest person in the world. Your plan was so bad. Stella's the one that watched the tape. Emmett's not going to give you a dime. Everything is ruined, and I'm coming for you. So here's a question. Do you think this was Nikki's plan from the beginning, that Stella would watch the tape? Because that envelope was definitely unsealed. And if you like write for your eyes only in huge letters on the front of an envelope, you're inviting someone else to look at it, right? I would not put it past her because she so quickly has the backup plan, which is like, oh, well, for $200,000, I could convince Stella that what she saw wasn't really what she saw. Yeah, and getting back to political connections, they have this long conversation about what makes a fact or not. And Sai is saying, it's not a fact. Like, Emmett never cheated on his wife. This never happened. You have no leverage. And Nikki basically says, 
she believes it. It's a fact. Yeah, she says it doesn't make it any less of a fact, even if it never happened. Cy has a plan for his conference with Nikki. He summons her to Stussy Lot 350. So Ray hops on the bus to very happily head back to his home. He doesn't have the car because Nikki took the car to go do, what does she say, girl stuff, something like that. So she's not telling Ray that she's having this meeting with Cy. So Nikki goes off to her secret meeting with Cy. Ray gets on the bus and gets a phone call from, guess who? Emmett. Emmett is not happy with his brother. He's lost everything now. He lost his wife. He's he's losing Cy. I mean, he's alone. He is uh, he's in the wind here. Basically, they have a screaming match. Nothing really gets established except that now the blood is very, very bad. Ray hangs up and apologizes to everybody on the St. Cloud Transit bus who's had to listen to it. And he just sort of shrugs and says, it was my mom. I think I've actually heard conversations like this on the bus. I'm I'm not going to lie. I think they were trying to play it for shock value. And I was like, no, I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Of course, we live in Minneapolis. Slightly different than St. Cloud. So Emmett's heading into work, but he's not going to get very far because right in front of his car is VM Varga waiting for him. And this choral music starts playing, which got me nervous because normally on Fargo, anytime choral music starts playing, somebody dies. Yes, but no one dies. They just have a little conversation where Varga uh, lets uh, Emmett know that the Jew, as Varga puts it, can't be trusted. Of course, here we have more anti-Semitic remarks directed at the Feltz family, in this case, Sai. And you really get a clear vision here of how much Varga is pulling all of the strings in this situation. He's pitting Emmett against Sai. Um, considering we know that he's tapped Ray and Nikki, I'm sure he didn't stop their plan. He allowed that to happen. I mean, Varga is completely isolating Emmett. He's cutting him off from anyone he could possibly have a relationship with. And he's telling him that he'll take care of it here. I can take care of all of these problems for you. And Emmett and Varga have even more reasons to be mad at Ray and Nikki than they even know because their little $10,000 withdrawal from the bank triggered a visit from the IRS. Yes, indeed. A wonderfully awkward IRS agent shows up, played by Hamish Linklater. Who, if you're watching Legion, you saw him there, too. And uh, he explains that he just needs to kick the tires of Stussy Lots. And he's explaining this all to Emmett while VM is ominously watching from the next room. And because of the glass walls, IRS agent suspects, oh, is that Mr. Feltz over there? And Emmett doesn't even know what to say. He says, I, it might be. <laughs> well, so this is a super loaded question here. He says, um, how many partners do you have? Which is the central question of this episode because his wife left him because she thought that he had another romantic partner. And now it's the Psy uh, being a partner or is Varga his partner? I mean, there's this whole question of who's whose partner and how many partners. And the IRS guy gets right at it. Being promised a room to investigate the Stussy finances starting at 730 the next morning. He takes off and immediately Varga wants to know, did he have a wedding ring? Does he have kids? What can we blackmail him with? Right. Every time Varga shows up, he gets more ruthless. Yeah. And Emmett is just taken aback. He's like, the gig is up. Basically, Emmett thinks they're all going down. Varga is not going to go down that easily. He's like, oh, Oh, so they want to see the books? That's fine. We'll show them the fake books. And Emmett says, what? We have fake books? <laughs> he didn't even realize that fake books would need to be part of this billionaire scheme that uh, Varga is planning. But back to the poor Cy, and in this case, poor Nikki. They have their meeting, and it turns out that Cy Unshackled is just Cy with 
$40,000 that he's now going to try to use to bribe Nikki into dropping the whole sex tape thing. She says, no way, 200000 but up come Yuri and Mimo, who have uh, some historical reminders to drop regarding the mass murders that have marked the history of Russia. Right. He's, they, uh, they ask, have you ever been to Siberia? Which is never just a friendly question. That's not a friendly question that you ask. That's a, are you aware of the atrocities that committed there and the atrocities that I am about to commit here? Yeah. So again, with the blood feud, now we're you know bringing anti-Semitism into this, more with ethnic strife. We have Yuri talking about the pogroms, mass killings of Jews in Russia. Where is Yuri coming from in all this? Who knows? But he is super upset. He's got a burning hatred, and he's going to take it out with the help of Mimo, who speaks for the first time. He does. He doesn't have anything good to say, but he speaks. Yeah, he says something very rude to Nikki, who tries to come up with a sharp comeback, which she does, but unfortunately not as sharp as the uh, tip of the boots that end up kicking her pretty brutally. I thought Nikki was going down for the count here. I mean, this is a brutal scene to watch. It's hard to watch. It's hard to listen to. It goes on for a really long time, and you experience it through Sai's horrified face. This was like a masterful scene. The expression on his face and the sounds, and he doesn't know what happened to Nikki. We don't know what's happening to Nikki. I thought she was done. Yeah. So Yuri and Mimo let Sai know this is what comes after the cup. You get out of line again, Sai, and this is going to be the next step for you. And God knows what else regarding you, your family. There's, all the implications are there. Yuri and Mimo roll off, and Sai then also rolls off. Doesn't help. Nikki decides, well, here we go. I guess things are fixed, or at least he can't fix them anymore. And he leaves Nikki unconscious or at least semi-conscious on the frozen ground. Well, that's the thing. We don't know what's happened to her. We don't know what's happened until you're staring at the car and then all of a sudden her hand comes up and grabs the side of the car and you're like, oh, Nikki Swango, not down yet. Not down yet. Very badly beaten, but in a way that isn't apparent unless you lift her shirt, as Ray does later. She's been kicked about the middle, so, you know, she's in pain, probably has some broken ribs, But um, we'll be able to go about her daily business without people knowing what's been done to her. Right. So, I mean, last episode, we learned that Nikki Swango is the cat. Cats, as we know, have nine lives. She's even got her little fur coat fitting on theme there. Nikki Swango, very much the cat at the end of this episode. Yes. And keeping with Varga's general modus operandi, which is very different from the M.O. of the mob family in season two, Varga is not going to make any more of a trace than he needs to. There's going to be no more blood than there needs to be. There's going to be no more mess than there needs to be. I don't know about that. Mess? Varga's (laughs) all about the mess. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Sai would be applauding that observation. Okay, wait. So the image that we see at the very end of this episode, it's a wolf, right? It's going back to the Peter and the wolf thing from last scene. So Nikki's the cat. We know Varga's the wolf. And we get this very strange silhouette. Is it it taxidermy? What, What is happening in that? 
I don't know. I thought it was maybe I like a feather duster in front of a humidifier. I'm still trying to normalize everything, Tracy. It's a wolf, isn't it? It's a wolf. It's, it's a yeah, wolf. It's pet, a wolf. Right? It's, it's, it's the devil. It's yeah. It's something that you don't want to be looking at, but we are all staring into the face of. Well, and I had a major nerd moment because I was like, that looks like some Game of Thrones dire wolf kind of stuff. If we're being totally honest, so maybe a little Game of Thrones crossover, huh? Uh, maybe I've given up on Gloria being a ghost and I'm just waiting for some White Walkers. Winter sure. is coming, Jay. It is here. Winter is absolutely here. Uh, hey, shout out to our colleague Matt Sepek at NPR News who pointed out that going back a couple of episodes to the Android science fiction episode, Android Minsky's name is no coincidence. Right. So Minsky, uh, that's the last name of the professor who founded the AI lab at MIT. Um, His last name is Minsky. Of course, to make it even more of a Fargo reference, they drop the I. So it just reads MN Sky, which is a total reference to second season when you wanted to be watching the skies because there was a little something extra up there. So true. And uh, Marvin Minsky was specifically the person who invented that useless box. Yeah, the hands that come out. That's Minsky, too. All Minsky. Super cool. And now a special guest from northern Minnesota. We are here with another diehard Fargo fan, Aaron Brown. Aaron is a writer, radio producer, and college instructor who lives in northern Minnesota. And he's been reviewing all three seasons. You can find all that on his website, minnesotabrown.com. Aaron, what do you think of season three so far? Well, my, my knock on season three so far is that it's a beautiful season. There's so many stylistic elements that uh, we just love about Fargo, the, the way that the story is arcing and the, all of the imagery and, and references that cause you to you know, seek out an encyclopedia to figure out what you just saw. I love that stuff. Uh, what I'm not seeing yet is a real sense of uh, really caring about the characters, especially the side characters or the, you know, obviously I think we've established this appreciation of Gloria. She's, she's the classic uh, protagonist in the Fargo play. And we have a wonderful villain in, in Varga. He's this kind of monstrous uh, soliloquy spouting bad guy like we love. But everybody else is kind of in this muddled state from a trying to understand what makes them tick. And I guess I'm, I was looking for more, and I think we're getting there. I think the last episode, I, I've just been waiting for the, uh, the gear to catch. And um, I have, I've, I've been burned not having faith in Noah Hawley before. I'm, I think you'll get us there, but um, I'm enjoying it. I, I mean, it's, it's still the best show on TV as far as I'm concerned. It's just we've got really spoiled with those first two seasons. I love the character of Psy, and I've been happily surprised at how he just becomes more and more prominent every episode. Yeah, and actually, Psy and Nikki, the the cohorts of the brothers, are are I think more important than the brothers. The brother, and that's why I guess my problem is the Ewan McGregor characters are in this supposed feud, but it's their it's their company, it's their partners who cause who cause all the action to occur. Yeah, I was going to ask, so so far, your take, Ewan McGregor's double casting, stunt or is it paying off? I, I struggle with it. Um, I think the, way, the reason it works will probably relate to the underlying theme we got in the first episode where we have this mistaken identity. 
where we have that scene where the person is hauled in in the old East German police office and and, uh, is told that they committed these crimes, but it's not them. Um, I think that was a setup for something that will happen in the next few episodes where Ray and Emmett are mistaken, just like Ennis and Emmett were mistaken. And that's where I think it won't be a gimmick because they do definitely look alike, especially with Ray uh, Sands' mustache now. I thought it was funny when when, uh, they shaved the mustache off of uh, Ray uh, his his accent suddenly mirrored that of Emmett's more than the what what Ray had going. I, thought, I don't know if that was just a subconscious thing. The mustache was the true distinguishing factor. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's really something interesting that you pointed out that Ray and Emmett actually have different Minnesota accents. Yeah, I noticed that the first episode because I you know the first time out the shoot you're trying to figure out these actors and you know, how they're approaching. And there's different ways to do the Minnesota accent. There's the, you can try to be a truly authentic or you can try for an exaggerated kind of melodramatic approach. And I, I definitely put Emmett, um, Ewan McGregor's Emmett in that category. And Ray was a little more understated. And I actually commented that Ray's accent was better than Emmett's in, in Ewan McGregor's performance. And now it feels like they're both, they're both using the Emmett style. Yeah, it's an interesting idea you're suggesting that if the two brothers are mistaken for one another, it could be that, say, in the final episode, we'll see Ray facing the consequences, perhaps ironically, not for his own many sins, but for Emmett's. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I, I was listening to your your um, your last episode where you talk about Ray being the duck in the Peter and the Wolf play and how the duck is the one that's doomed. But you would have thought Emmett would have been the doomed one, is what you guys were saying. And and what's interesting is, what if Ray is doomed because he's mistaken for Emmett? That's I'll put that out there as my uh, my prediction. The wig giveth and the wig taketh away. <laughs> it does, yes. Uh-huh. So I want to ask a question that kind of gets into all three seasons. Um, henchman Wars, right? Season yeah. one had Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers, who communicated in sign language. Uh, season two, we had the Kitchen Brothers, who were yeah. pretty much mute. Now we have Yuri and Mimo. Uh, Yuri likes to go on long tangents about Russia. Mimo has been silent so far. Who would win in a henchman war between all three seasons? Who would you bet on? I'd say that the um, Kitchen Brothers would have been tougher so far. They had a the lot kitchen. of things hidden in their coats, so I think yeah, they did, and they were and they were very uh, ruthless. Wrench and numbers were far more intellectual. There was these discussions; they thought about things more, and I think that, was, that slowed them down. The kitchen kitchen brothers were were truly hired uh, hired guns in the true sense. They they were like machines, and and these guys, um, I don't know yet, but we'll see, I guess. Yeah, well, the new guys, Yuri and Mimo, they're sort of understated, which is VM Vargas style, right? He doesn't want to make yeah. any waves he doesn't have to make. Yeah, the the last spiel he he gave in episode four, where where he was talking about disappearing and being being enormously wealthy but invisible, um, these these guys all seem to operate under that credo. You don't you don't see what they do. I mean, we see as viewers, but they don't leave any traces. They're not they're not. Uh, uh, demonstrative in what they're what they're up to. So, from a northern Minnesota perspective, how are the uh, Minnesota references working for you this season? Okay, I, I'd say it's okay. I'm 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 not outraged by anything, which is pretty good for um, 
for Fargo in, in Minnesota. Of course, I I come at this. I, I like the show. I, I see the art in it, and and of course, I still interact with a lot of people who can't even stand that they're making the show just because of how uh, egregious it is that they would do this. But you know, I think this year's fictional Saint Cloud. I, I my last review, I kind of went on a a rant about Saint Cloud. Um, it, it's it's all right. It's it's definitely not Saint Cloud though. It's very quaint, isn't it? It's much more yeah. charming than the real Saint Cloud. Well, in, in the, then in the last episode, you saw some tall buildings, taller, I think, than Saint Cloud has. But then you, but then their newspaper. This is what I observed. Their newspaper is in black and white. It looks like a weekly newspaper. Um, and and uh, I think Emmett was reading it at the desk one day, and so they have this: is it a small town or is it a mid-sized regional center? You know, like St. Cloud actually is. I don't know about that. And Eden Valley, I don't know well enough. I I did um, make an observation that I haven't used, which is that, you know, I remember the people in Bemidji season one were outraged when they said that Bemidji did not have a public library. And of course, Virginia has a very nice public library. They'd be the first to tell you. Um, but Eden Valley. Uh, uh, was shown having a library in the opening, one of the opening scenes this season of the of the town, and uh, what's ironic about that is Eden Valley doesn't have a public library. They have a little community library, but it's not a public library, and so they've actually given library credit to Eden Valley, where Bemidji was denied library <laughs> credit in the past. Could you actually say a little bit more about the people you talk to in northern Minnesota who don't like the show or don't even like the idea of the show? Yeah, well, well, it's the super earnest thing about Minnesotans, I think, that you see, which is, well, we don't have we don't have murders like that, you know, and we don't talk like that, and all those filthy mouthed people, and 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 then of course the accents, which nobody recog- you know, nobody recognizes their own accents. Um, I thought that's where uh, when Gloria went to California this season. Um, the whole it was an unusual episode uh, stood out from any of the other episodes I think that have ever aired on Fargo, and uh, w- but the reason it stayed Fargo in my mind is because of the way she and her accent and her Minnesota ways interacted with the West Coast vibe of that episode, and um, I think you don't really notice it until you leave. I didn't know I had an accent until I left the area, and uh, people repeated back to me my Minnesota phrases, and then I realized I had an accent. But uh, I think if you've stayed in northern Minnesota or a more rural part of the state your whole life, just like the characters in the show, you don't realize that the way you talk is is, uh, distinct to your region. I used to live in Duluth when I was a kid, and then we moved to uh, St. Paul. My new schoolmates made fun of me. Yeah. In St. Paul. (laughs) Right. I, I moved. I went to college in Iowa, which is not exact. It's still got a Midwestern accent there, but they they were merciless. They they picked up on it right away. They thought I was a Canadian. That was what they said. But I, yeah, I feel like sometimes the Canada is showing in this show. Uh, it's obviously filmed up there, and yeah, uh, there's some... well, that is one nice thing about doing it in Canada. You get the local actors, and and you don't have to train them much uh, because. The further north you go in Minnesota, the, really you're you're entering in a, a lingual system that's much more in common with Ontario and the northern plains of Canada than um, than the Midwest, the, the Great Plains area of the United States. You see that transition really around Twin Cities, but as you go further north, as you say, Duluth is different, you know. And of course, I'm on the I'm on the Iron Range, which has its whole a whole other thing going on there, but. Um, 
but yeah, you really see the the shades happening the further north you go. That's why I like when the show is set uh, north of the Twin Cities because I think you get you get that that vibe a little better. Do you have a favorite season of Fargo? For me, I I loved season two, and I'm having a hard time getting over it. And three isn't quite there for me. What about you? Mm-hmm. That's exactly where I am. I I didn't think two could could beat one, but it did. And it perhaps because two informed one. I loved one, and then two just gave depth to the previous season and added so much more of its own. Season three is is truly standalone so far. I mean, we get the references to the previous seasons. They're they're here and there. Um, you know, callbacks and actors like Billy Bob's uh, uh, voiceover last episode um, and things like that. But um, you know, I, I think it's. He he went out on his own. Noah Hawley went out on his own, and he's got different writers on this episode. More more different writers, and I think that's just it's it's a, still a beautifully constructed thing. It's just uh, more of a standalone. It doesn't have the power of those previous episodes giving weight to the activity we're watching. Because we know in season two that Lou becomes the Lou in season one. So we know that whatever made him Lou season one is happening to him. We're watching it happen to him, so there's a gravity to it. I don't feel that yet in season three. Have you guys talked about the preponderance of bodily fluids in this season? Not in a in a centralized section. There is okay. a lot of bodily fluid happening in yeah, this season. Yeah, I mean, not just, you know, casually either. Because you had in, in the the urine testing, Big Lebowski urine testing montage in um, the first episode, we get the of course the 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 very prominent role that menstrual blood has played in two different episodes, and then um, and then you've got the the uh, Varga's uh, preponderance for vomiting. Um, um, and so you've got these, and they all play a central part in the uh, in the story in a lot of ways. So I think that's it's it's hard to watch, but it's uh, interesting. Yeah, no, <laughs> I I was chatting about it with someone. We we're trying to decide like is season three good or is it just interesting or what's happening here? And I was like, well, it's definitely grosser than the other seasons. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot, and it's not as as my wife said. It's not as murdery. I mean, I and I say that that there've already been you know a few deaths. It's not like there's nobody dying. It's just it feels like. Uh, Instead of shocking us with um, with gruesome uh, murders like like before, you know Varga's only really killed the one guy, uh, and I mean the body counts on the bad guys in the previous episodes were much higher, um, up to the ceiling. Yeah, literally like cordwood. Yeah, there. I mean, yeah, there were actual massacres in one and two that we built towards, and in this one, I'm I don't know if we're gonna have the shootout, if we're gonna have the huge bloodbath. Yeah, I mean, our, some of our main characters are going to bite the dust, but um, or could, but it would be much more well surgical. I don't, I don't see the the mass, the threat of mass destruction that we've had. And maybe that's it too, because we knew the season two. I think that that massacre was coming. It was foretold. You know, we knew it, and we just didn't know how it was going to happen. And um, I feel like something's coming here, but it's going to be much more subtle in, in season three. I guess you have to say this season is more of a pissing match. Yeah, <laughs> that made me throw up. So you uh, you wake up one morning, Aaron Brown, and you find you are in charge of setting the storyline for Fargo season four. Where and when would you set it? 
Oh my God, I'm so glad you asked this uh, because it's it, really the reason you wonder why I'm doing this. You know, it's not uh, reviewing a, uh, a TV show, an uh, uh, art house TV show on a regional blog that isn't well read, isn't a very profitable endeavor. What I really want is for, a, I want Noah Hawley to call me so I can write an episode in, in a future season. And this is the season. It's set on the Masabi Iron Range. It's farther in the past, farther than, uh, I'm talking early 20th century, amid all of the the, the mining strife and, and things like that. And we're going to have kind of a, a wacky, a wacky kind of adventure set amid these um, these kind of uh, these mining towns and these boom towns of the 1910s and 20s. That's that's what I want. That's what I want to see. I would absolutely watch that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm ready. Noah, call me. I'm I, I can do this. I got it. Thanks so much, Aaron. Yeah, and Noah Holly, please call us too. We'll just put out a lot of yeah. calls. Yeah. Noah Holly, yeah, I think we're all listening. waiting in line yeah. for that. Yeah. But yeah. but I'll, I'll happily wait behind you guys when you get your turn. I'll I'll do mine. This was great, Aaron. Thanks so much for joining us, and um, we'll check back in with you about how season three can really turn it around and surprise us. Cool. Thank you both. Thanks. You Bye. Bye. We'll be back with you next week for what is sure to be another action-packed episode of Fargo. This podcast is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Anna Reed. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Follow us on Twitter at Aujeez Podcast, A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. We promise you we'll come up with more Seifelt's memes. And if you haven't rated us on iTunes yet, please do so. It really helps new people find the podcast and grow our audience. Thanks. Okay, then. Bye now.